You know, one of the controversies that Christians often debate is, when was Jesus born? And of course, we celebrated on December 25th, but not everybody believes that Jesus was born on December 25th. The Eastern Church celebrated Jesus' birth in church history on January 6th. They believe that's when he was born. The Western Church in Rome celebrated his birth in September. Of course, we celebrated December 25th. You say, well, when was Jesus born? We really don't know the exact date, but if you calculate when the angel appeared to Zechariah, and then when Elizabeth got pregnant with John the Baptist, uh, John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. Many people believe, based on the time of year that Zacharias went into the temple to offer up incense on the altar, many people believe that Jesus was born, based on the calculations, in September. You say, well, then why don't we celebrate in September? Because we really don't know dogmatically the date. In reality, it really doesn't matter, because what God is after is the heart. Because in the end, if we celebrate Christmas and we're caught up in the materialism and all the fanfare of Christmas, not that those things are bad in and of themselves, but they can distract from the true meaning of Christmas. So God is interested in the heart. Do we worship Jesus in terms of celebrating his birth? Now, we've been looking at Matthew's chapters 1 and 2, and what we've been looking at is the birth of Christ. And I've shown you that Matthew shows us that Jesus, in his birth, fulfills six prophecies. So turn, if you will, to Matthew's chapter 1 and 2. We are taking a break from our current study. We're in 2 Timothy. We'll pick back up in 2 Timothy in January. But for this morning, we are looking at Matthew's chapters 1 and 2 on the Christ child fulfills prophecy. And Matthew, if you remember, wrote his gospel to Jewish people. Matthew was a Jew. He's also called Levi in the gospels. And he wrote his gospels to target the Jewish people. <clears throat> and in order to reach the Jewish people, what Matthew has to do is to show them that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy because the Old Testament prophesied the coming of the Messiah. And so what Matthew does is he shows right at the outset that Jesus is the promised king, the promised Messiah, because he does fulfill Old Testament prophecies. And what he shows us in chapters 1 and 2 is six prophecies that Jesus fulfills in relation to his birth. And as I said, Fulfilled prophecies is one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is the Word of God. Jesus fulfilled 109 of them at His first coming. There's still a lot of them to be fulfilled at His second coming. As I said last week, if God fulfilled all those prophecies related to His first coming, He will fulfill them related to His second coming. So what are these prophecies? Well, let's look at the first three that I gave you last time. First of all, I noted for you that Christ fulfills prophecy in relation to his ancestry. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, he gives that genealogical record. Luke gives it as well. And basically what Matthew is doing there was showing that Jesus is the rightful king. He's the rightful heir to the throne. Why does he have to do that? Well, if you're going to be the king of the Jews, you better trace it back in your genealogy that you are in a kingly line. Now, Matthew doesn't do it directly. He doesn't say, thus fulfills this prophecy, but it's implied. Because what he does is he traces in Matthew 1, Jesus' genealogy back to King David. David was a king. And you say, well, what's the prophecy? 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that David would have an everlasting dynasty. 
People don't have everlasting dynasties. But David did because Jesus was in the genealogical line of King David. That's why Jesus is called a son of David. Therefore, Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. Now, biologically, he was not born to Joseph, but he's the legal adopted son of Joseph. Therefore, he's the rightful heir to the throne because he will rule over Israel as a king forever. In fact, Luke says this, when Gabriel appears to uh, Mary, here is what uh, the angel said to Mary. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Notice what it says. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. There it is. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And so we see here that Jesus fulfills the prophecy of 2 Samuel and he is the rightful heir to the throne. So the first prophecy he fulfills is that related to his ancestry. The second prophecy he fulfills is that related to his virgin birth. And here he's referring to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. There was a prophecy there that Messiah would be born of a virgin. Now this was necessary in order to maintain the sinlessness of Christ. If Jesus would have been born through natural means, Joseph and Mary, he would have been born a sinner because men passed down, many believe the sin nature, therefore God bypassed Joseph and allowed a virgin birth. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary so that Jesus would be born sinless in order to be qualified to die for the sins of the world. And so the second prophecy he fulfills is that of a virgin birth. The third prophecy is that related to his birthplace. And what he does there is he quotes Micah chapter 5, verse 2, because the prophet Micah predicted that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, some people think that when he came into Bethlehem, there was no room for them in the inn, and so they were uh, basically Jesus was born in a cave. And if you look at the picture coming up, there's a church that they actually built over the cave way back in church history in order to commemorate where Jesus was born. Wherever there's a holy site, they build a church. And so they did it at the birth. Well, we don't know for certain if he was born in a cave. Some people believe no room for them in the inn is the upper room, as I mentioned, where they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Same Greek word. And so the idea is when Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem for the census, surely they had family there. Joseph was from Bethlehem. There had to be relatives. And listen, in that culture, hospitality was king. And so he went to a relative's house, and there were other relatives there, and some of those other relatives were in the upper room, so there was no room for them in the upper room, so basically Jesus was born in the garage. That's where they kept the animals. And so that's a popular view as well. It really doesn't matter. We know prophecy was fulfilled, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So those are the first three prophecies that Matthew seeks to prove to the Jewish people that Jesus is, in fact, their promised Messiah and King. Let's look at the fourth prophecy for this morning in terms of Jesus fulfilling prophecy, and that is this. Christ fulfills prophecy regarding his escape to and return from Egypt. His escape to Egypt and his return from Egypt. Now, Matthew is going to take some time to develop this, so you've got to be patient as we go through it. But let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 7. It says this, Then Herod called the Magi secretly. Now, remember I said Herod basically 
was very threatened by any rival. And so when these magi came in, they were a priestly tribe. They were kingmakers. When they came in to Jerusalem and they kept asking people, hey, where's this king of the Jews? Word gets back to Herod. Herod calls a private meeting with them. And basically, Herod is going to try to find out through them where the Christ child is. Herod was suspicious. He was jealous. He killed a lot of his family members. He didn't like the idea that there was a rival king. He was not a true Jew. He was an Idumean. His mom was a Nabataean. Therefore, the Jews did not like him. He did some good things, but they didn't like him. So Herod called these magi, these wise men, secretly, and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Why? Because he was trying to figure out, okay, what are the ages that I need to kill the children up to? And notice in verse 8 it says, He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. Where did he get that information that Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Remember, he went to the religious establishment. The scribes told him that Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. So he relays that information to the wise men. And he says, Go find the Christ child. Search for him. And basically, when you come back, let me know. Because I want to worship him too, is what he says. Now, the wise men here are a picture of non-believers. In what sense? Well, remember, the wise men, they trafficked in astrology and astronomy. They studied the stars because they believed that the stars basically were connected to people's destinies. And so the wise men, when they got the revelation that this star or this Shekinah glory meant the birth of a king, they began their journey of seeking God. And listen, there's a lot of non-believers. They don't come to Christ right away. It's a journey. God took the wise men, who were Gentiles, by the way, and Matthew implicitly is trying to tell the Jewish people that Jesus is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. But God led them progressively. He started with the star. Then they get to Jerusalem. They're asking, where's this king of the Jews? No one knows. And then finally, they're given information from the Jewish scriptures that he would be born in Bethlehem. There's another piece of the puzzle. And then as we're going to see later on, the star reappears over the house where Jesus is. There's another piece of the puzzle. You see, God leads many times, not always, non-believers progressively before they come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, he does this with believers. God reveals himself to us more and more as we walk with him. But notice what Herod said to them. Herod said to these wise men, go and search carefully for the child. As a believer, are we searching after Jesus? Because listen, just as God works in the non-believer's life progressively, he works in your life and in my life progressively. As we seek the Lord, what happens is God reveals more of himself to us. As it says in Jeremiah, if you seek me, you will find me if you search for me with all your what? heart. Some of you may not be growing in your walk with God because you're not searching after Jesus. And so the wise men are a picture of non-believers in the process of finding God. And it also is a picture of believers as we grow in our walk with God. We need to intently search for Jesus Christ. And notice it says in verse um, 8, as soon as you find him, Herod said, Report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, obviously, Herod 
was not interested in worshiping Jesus. He was a phony. He was a fake. He pretended that he wanted to worship Jesus, but that was not what was in his heart. And you know what? In the church today, there are people that pretend to worship God. There are people that will talk Christianese language. On the outside, they look like they want to worship God, but on the inside, their hearts are far from God. They don't know God. That's why the Bible says God's going to separate the wheat from the tares. Because the tares look just like the wheat. They talk Christian, they quack Christian, but they're really not Christian. And you know what God's going to do? He's going to unmask the hypocrites on the day of judgment. They're going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Herod pretended like he wanted to worship Jesus, but he was a con man. He was a deceiver. So it says in verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, this is why I don't believe this was a literal star. Now, some people believe because the wise men studied astrology and astronomy. And by the way, in ancient times, those two were together. Today, we separate them. Astronomy is studying the planets. Astrology is looking at the planets and then making an interpretation about your future. In that day, it was one. So, They basically were studying the stars, and so from their perspective, it was a literal star. And maybe the prophecy of Numbers chapter 24, it says this, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Maybe it was that prophecy that they learned in Babylon. And so when they saw the star, obviously God had to connect the dots for the wise men, because you don't just see a star and go, hey, a king is going to be born. I believe that they were probably given a dream or a vision connecting the star with the birth of the Messiah. Now, I don't believe it was a literal star personally, and here's the reason why. I believe it was the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory was God's presence that was in the tabernacle in that second room or the temple. And the reason why is because when they first saw it, they followed it. When they got to Jerusalem, it disappears, and then it reappears over the house where Jesus is at. And so you have the glory of God resting over the glory of Jesus. Jesus, by the way, is the glory of God. And so they see this star, and they basically, it says here, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. The star they had seen when it rose ahead of them, it stopped over the place where the child was. And by the way, this shows us that God reveals himself in two ways. Natural revelation, special revelation. Natural revelation is God's revelation of himself through creation. God used the star, as it were, to the wise men to reveal himself to them. What does it say in Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. God has revealed himself through creation. So that Romans chapter 1 says that if you've never heard about Jesus Christ, you are without excuse because you know that there is a God looking at creation. I had a guy say to me yesterday, he said, there's no proof for God. He says, give me proof. Sometimes I want to laugh. Proof? You want proof? Look at this universe. Does something come from nothing? And so God reveals himself through general revelation. Romans 1 says that man suppresses that knowledge. But if you are open to that knowledge and you seek after God, God will give you more knowledge, and that's where you get special revelation. Notice the wise men got both. God started off with natural revelation, creation, the star, and then God led them to Herod. Herod didn't know where Jesus was going to be born. 
He finds out from the scribes and the religious leaders, and they go to the scripture, and then Herod tells the wise men he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so the wise men got natural revelation, creation, and they got special revelation, the Bible. And that's often how God works. And by the way, the more revelation you have, the more accountable. To whom much is given, much is required. If you only know about God through natural creation, God will judge you according to the knowledge that you have. So we get into this discussion about people that have never heard the gospel. Listen, they know, they know there's a God by natural revelation. If they live up to that knowledge that they do have, God will ensure that missionaries give them the gospel. But what does Romans 1 say? They suppress the truth. Just like in a basketball in a pool. You hold it down, it pops up. Hold it down, it pops up. That's what people do. They suppress the knowledge. And listen, we're the recipients of special revelation, so we are privileged. And so these wise men, they see the star stopping over the house where Jesus was. And then notice verse 10. When they saw the star, they were, the Greek is very strong, they were exceedingly joyful. You know what exceedingly joyful means? It means that when you're at a football game and your team scores and you get up and you high-five. Listen, they probably got off their camels and they were high-fiving one another. Hey, man, we found the house. This is great. The end of our search has come. Think about it. They traveled thousands of miles. It was arduous. And finally, they find Jesus. They were like, high-five, down low. They were excited, exceedingly joyful. And by the way, this is another picture of the sinner who finally finds Christ. And when they do find Christ, there is joy, there is peace. There are a lot of people that will tell you, you know, I was on this journey, I didn't believe in God. And then I heard this information and it got me thinking. And then I heard this information. And they go through this long search. And then finally, when they embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior, there is joy and there is peace in their heart. Why? Because they found the reason for their existence. I was having breakfast with a couple in the church last week, and the gentleman was telling me his testimony, and he said, you know, I grew up in the church, and I knew about Jesus, but I didn't want to follow him, and I rejected him, and I went through a crisis in my life, and this person said, I was in my house, and I finally woke up. I couldn't sleep. I was a terrible sleeper. He said, I finally said, all right, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I trust. He said, a burden lifted off him. He said, for the first time, he said, I had joy and peace, and he said, I slept through the night. He says, I would never sleep through the night. Why? Because he found Christ. Not everyone has the same experience. But this is the picture of the sinner finding Christ and rejoicing. And it says in verse 11, on coming to the house, Jesus was in a rented house here. He was in a rented house. He was probably one to two years old. By the way, not to burst your bubble, most of you probably know this, but the wise men did not show up when Jesus was born. The shepherds did. The wise men came one to two years later. Jesus and his parents are in a rented house here. And it says here, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and notice what it says they did. They bowed down and they proskuneo in the Greek. They worshiped him. You know what the word proskuneo means? It means to bow down and to kiss the feet. You know what this shows? Jesus is God. Because listen, only God can receive worship. And the fact that they worship Jesus shows that he is deity. Interesting, this word, proskuneo, to bow down and kiss the feet, it's used in Revelation 22, 
when John got the revelation of the book of Revelation, at the end, notice what John did in verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, the book of Revelation. And when I heard and had seen them, here it is, I fell down to proskuneo, the angel who had been showing them to me. I bowed down to kiss the feet and worship the angel. But the angel said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. He says, worship God. See, only God can be worshiped. Jesus was worshiped throughout his ministry. Therefore, Jesus is God. And by the way, isn't this the ultimate search? When we find Jesus, we worship him. John chapter 4 says that God searches for those who will worship him in spirit and truth. That's the ultimate goal of salvation is worship. John Piper says missions exist because worship does not. Missions exist because worship does not. There are people all across the globe that don't worship God or Jesus Christ. That's why we have to do missions. And that's the ultimate goal. God is searching after worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. Verse 11, then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold. Gold speaks of royalty. Jesus is king. He's deity. They gave him frankincense. That speaks of his humanity. That's an incense. And then, of course, myrrh. Myrrh is what they bury you with. That speaks of Jesus' death. And incidentally, this is where we get the three wise men because there were three gifts. But as I told you, there probably was a whole entourage of wise men that came. There wasn't just three of them, but we extrapolate from this the three gifts based on the three wise men. And isn't it interesting that they gave him those things which cost them something? Worship will always cost you something. Many Christians want to worship God, but they don't want to pay a price. Listen, if you're going to worship God, it's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you blood, sweat, and tears. It's going to cause pain. It may even cost you your life. And see, Christians want an easy believism. I want to come to God. I want to go to church and be entertained. And don't ask me to do anything. Don't ask me to sacrifice. Listen, that's not biblical Christianity because true worship will cost you something. Verse 12, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Sometimes the route God takes us, he often will give us another route. God doesn't always take us the same route the same time. And you know what? God warns us, just like he warned the wise men, if you walk with God and you're walking in the Spirit, there will be times in your life where God will warn you. Hey, don't marry that person. No, I got to marry this person. Holy Spirit says, don't marry that person. If you do, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> I know what I want, God, and I'm going to do it anyway. Two years later, oh, I should have listened to God. He told me not to marry that person. Don't take that job. Yeah, but Lord, it makes so much more money. I get paid $50,000 more. Don't take that job. Still small voice. We don't listen. Verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up! Don't you wish you had somebody tell you to get up in the morning? You do. It's an alarm clock. He said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Now, there was a Jewish population in Egypt. It was quite large. This was about a three-day journey. 
to get there. By the way, have you noticed that sometimes following God is not always convenient? Have you noticed that sometimes following God, God doesn't always operate on your timetable? Sometimes God asks us to do things that are not convenient. Listen, it wasn't convenient for Mary when the angel told her, you're going to bear the Son of God. They had to deal with gossip and all that other stuff. They had to travel to Bethlehem. Now they got to travel to Egypt. If, if, if an American was in this text, we'd be arguing with God, going, God, what are you doing to me? This is not fair. God, you promised me a four-bedroom house. You promised me three cars. God, what, what are you doing to me? Not always convenient. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill. How long were they in Egypt? We don't know. It could have been days. It could have been months. It could have been up to a couple of years. Incidentally, there are those who teach that Jesus really did not do miracles in the Gospels. And here's what they say. When Jesus went down to Egypt, Egypt was known for its mystery religions and cults and all that stuff. And so Jesus was taught to be a magician while he was there. So that when he did come to Nazareth, start his public ministry, he was able to do all kinds of magic tricks in order to deceive people. Well, nothing could be further from the truth, but that's what they say. And then notice, if you will, and this is where we pick up the fourth prophecy here that Matthew shows Jesus fulfills. So we got up, that is Joseph, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. They did in the middle of the night where he stayed until the death of Herod, and then he gives us the fourth prophecy that Jesus fulfills, and so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet. Here he's going to quote Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. You say, well, wait a minute, Mike, time out. This has nothing to do with Jesus. Because if you read Hosea 11.1, 1, you know what it's talking about? It's talking about the nation of Israel and how God led them out of Egypt through Moses. That's what it's talking about. You say, so how does that relate to Jesus? Well, you got to follow along with me here. There's two types of prophecy in the Bible. Number one, there is predictive prophecy. And secondly, there is typological prophecy. Let me break that down for you. Here is predictive prophecy. If I said to you that in three years from now, the Miami Hurricanes are going to win the national title, you say, time out, that's false prophecy. <laughs> if I said to you in three years... Miami will win the national title. I'm making a prediction. If it comes true, that is predictive prophecy. So here's a predictive prophecy. Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. That's predictive prophecy. But there's another type of prophecy that the Bible uses that you may not be familiar with. It's typological prophecy. What is typological prophecy? It is a type or a picture in the Old Testament that points to Christ. So when you look at all those lambs in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, when they were slain, that was a picture or a type of Jesus Christ who would be slain for our sins. And so the Bible uses both types of prophecies, predictive, typological. When you get to Hosea 11.1, 1, what kind of prophecy do you think it's making? It's not making a predictive prophecy. It's making a typological prophecy. You say, in what sense? The nation of Israel as a whole is a picture of Jesus, is a type of Jesus. How? Israel as a nation went into Egypt, and then after 400 years, Moses led them out of Egypt. That is a type or a picture of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph going into Egypt. And as we're going to see later, they're going to be called out of Egypt. It is a typological prophecy. 
And so Matthew is showing the Jewish readers here that Jesus fulfills basically the prophecy of going into Egypt. Just as Israel went into Egypt, Jesus is going to go into Israel or into Egypt. Why? Because Jesus is the greater son of Israel. Jesus came out of Israel. And so basically what he's doing is he's recapitulating the history of Israel. Just as Israel went into Egypt and came out, Jesus is going to go into Egypt and eventually come out. It is a type of Christ. And so Matthew here shows us that Jesus fulfills prophecy typologically. Well, there's a fifth prophecy that Matthew gives his Jewish readers to show that Jesus fulfills prophecy, and that is Herod killing the babies. Herod killing the babies. Notice, if you will, verse 16 of chapter 2, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi. He wasn't outwitted. God told him to go in another direction, but from his perspective, he was bamboozled, as they would say. He was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. He thought he was hoodwinked, so he ordered the execution of all children to and under based on the time that the Magi gave him. By the way, you know Herod still exists today. He does. Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is the new Herod. Because listen, their goal is to kill babies. And listen, you know why they kill babies? It's strictly for profit. It is demonic. It is a demonic organization, Planned Parenthood. And so Herod is still with us today. So he wants to execute all of these children because he is threatened by that. And so it says, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And here is the fifth prophecy that Matthew shows Jesus fulfilled in relation to Herod killing the babies. And he quotes here Jeremiah 31, 15 from the Old Testament. It says, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And he quotes Jeremiah 31.15. Now, this is another prophecy, but what kind of prophecy is it? It's not a predictive prophecy. It is a typological prophecy. In what sense? Well, notice the diagram up on the screen. You will notice that in the Old Testament, Jacob had several wives. He had four. One of his wives was Rachel. Rachel is considered to be representing, she represents all Jewish women. And so all Jewish women mourned for their children in two particular events. First of all, when he quotes Jeremiah, he's quoting the Babylonian captivity. What happened? Well, Jeremiah warned the Jewish people, if you don't repent, I'm going to allow Nebuchadnezzar to come and take you into captivity. Well, when Nebuchadnezzar did... All of Rachel's children, as it were, all the mothers of Israel were weeping and crying as they saw their children being carted off into Babylonian captivity. Because Rachel represents, as a type, all the women of Israel. And so when the Babylonian captivity happened, the women of Israel were weeping for their children, as Jeremiah says, as they went into Babylonian captivity. Well, Matthew sees this as a type of Herod killing the babies. When Herod killed the babies, all the Jewish mothers who came from Rachel, as it were, they were weeping when Herod killed all the children up to two years old. And so we see another type here where basically Jesus fulfills 
as it relates to the killing of the children. In fact, John MacArthur says this, and I quote, Rachel represented all Jewish mothers who wept over Israel's great tragedy in the days of Jeremiah, and look at this, and prefigured the mothers of Bethlehem weeping bitterly over the massacre of their children by Herod, end quote. And so he fulfills another prophecy here, a typological prophecy, not a predictive one. Well, there's one final prophecy that he gives here that Jesus fulfills, and that is his return to Nazareth out of Egypt. His return to Nazareth out of Egypt. Notice, if you will, verse 19. After Herod died. Now, we know that Herod died, I believe, in 4 B.C. We have records of that. Herod died a brutal death. Josephus says he was eaten up with worms. In fact, he says that whatever was eating him up on the inside was coming through his breath, and he said his breath was very foul. And as I said to you last week, in order to ensure that people would mourn his death, he executed all top Jewish officials the moment he died to guarantee that there'd be crying throughout the land. Herod was a despotic man. He was wicked. And it says here, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Not again, Lord. I'm just starting to get into rhythm here. And said, what are the words? Get up. Get up. Sometimes God has to tell us, get up. Get up. Get up from your slumber. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. In other words, he said, stay there until I tell you. Don't make a move. And then God says, all right, it's time to go now. Herod's dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But, verse 22, when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Why? Because Archelaus was as bloodthirsty as his dad. In fact, if you'll notice, Herod had a big family line. He killed a number of his sons, but you have Herod the Great. One of his sons was Herod Antipas. Do you remember who Herod Antipas was? He's the one who had John the Baptist's head cut off. But look, one of his sons, Aristobulus, and then you got Archelaus. This is the guy that took over. And by the way, their territories were divided up. The Herod family, you go here, Herod Agrippa I, all down here. These Herods are mentioned in the book of Acts when Paul gives testimony. And so this guy takes over when Herod the Great dies, and Joseph realizes, wait a minute, Archelaus is reigning. He's just as wicked as his father. And then it says this, having been warned in a dream... He withdrew to the district of Galilee. Now, where's Galilee? Galilee's north of Israel. Jesus spent uh, over half his ministry there. And he went and lived in a town, verse 23, called Nazareth. And then he gives the sixth and final prophecy that Jesus fulfills. So was fulfilled what said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. By the way, notice he says prophets, plural. We don't know which prophet. He doesn't name it. Evidently, there was other prophets who wrote other books who are not in the Old Testament that mentioned that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. We don't know who those prophets were, but Matthew did. Now, what's the significance of being called a Nazarene? Well, to be from Nazareth, Nazareth was a Roman outpost. It was Hicktown. It was a term of derision to be called a Nazarene. Nazareth was not good. In fact, Nathaniel said in John chapter 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, it was a term of derision. So Jesus be called a Nazarene meant that he would be persecuted. He would be basically made fun of. Jesus would be verbally assaulted. He would be called a Nazarene. It could also refer to the Nazarite vow where Jesus lived a disciplined life. 
Obviously, Jesus had that Nazarite vow type of lifestyle. And so we don't know specifically, but he will be called the Nazarene. So this is a prophecy that Jesus would be the suffering servant, Isaiah chapter 53, where he would be persecuted. So fulfilled the prophets. So let's summarize the six prophecies that Jesus fulfilled that Matthew gives us. First of all, there is the prophecy of his ancestry. That would be 2 Samuel 7. Then there's the prophecy of his virgin birth. That is fulfilled in Isaiah 7.14. The prophecy of his birthplace, that's Micah 5.2. His fleeing to Egypt, an ultimate return, that would be Hosea. Then you have the prophecy of the killing of the babies, that's Jeremiah. And then finally, the return to Nazareth, that would be the prophets. Now as we close... What have we learned from this narrative, these two chapters? Obviously, Jesus fulfilled prophecy. And if Jesus fulfilled prophecy at his first coming, listen, he is coming back. He will come back literally and physically just like he came the first time. And so listen, you better be ready. You better be ready. Jesus said in Revelation 22, I come and my reward is with me. You better be living in light of the second coming because we're getting closer. But listen, there's one of three responses that we learn from Matthew 1 and 2 that we can have to Jesus. Number one is worship. That represents the wise men. The wise men worshiped Jesus. They fell down and bowed. There are people today that say, yes, I do believe Jesus is Lord. I do acknowledge him as the Son of God. I embrace him. I worship him. And listen, there are various degrees of growth. I get that. But these are worshipers. Are you a true worshiper this morning? Or are you like Herod? Are you a fake worshiper? And that leads me to the second response to Jesus, hostility. This represents Herod. There are people in our culture today that are hostile to Jesus. They want to stamp out Christmas. They don't like it. They don't want to talk about Jesus. Happy holidays. I went to New York City with my wife years ago when we lived in New Jersey. We were downtown in um, Manhattan, um, Times Square. And, you know, they have lights and glitter and everything, and they had this big billboard and it was lit up. It had a picture of Jesus with the nail, uh, with the crown of thorns around his head, and below it was a picture of Santa Claus with his hat. And here's what the caption said, dump the myth, celebrate the Mary. Dump the myth, celebrate the Mary. You look on the bottom, and it says atheist.org. They're the Herods. Now, they have hope, right? Many atheists have come to Christ. But you have people like Herod that want to stamp Jesus out. Some of them are very aggressive. They're very vociferous. Others of them are very passive, but nevertheless, they're hostile. And then finally, you have indifference. You have worship, hatred, and indifference. This would be the religious establishment. These are the people that when Herod asked the religious establishment, hey, where does it say in the Old Testament where the Messiah would be born? They said, well, according to Micah 5.2, Bethlehem. Guess what? There's no indication that they went down to Bethlehem to look at Jesus. To find him. They were indifferent, not hostile, not worshiping, just meh, blah. Listen, you have a lot of people in this category, even in the church. They're indifferent. Hey, man, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? I've given you evidence. Yeah, you know, that's reasonable. Have a nice day. So what? They're indifferent. Ben Shapiro. He had a guy on his show, William Lane Craig, who's one of the best evangelical debaters that we have, and he was presenting to Ben Shapiro the resurrection of Christ. And you know what Ben Shapiro said? He said, well, I don't know if I agree with you, but he says, he goes, frankly, the resurrection bores me. People are indifferent. 
Listen, all of humanity falls into one of these three categories. Either you worship, you're hostile, or you're indifferent. And listen, those who were indifferent to Jesus, they eventually became hostile and they killed him. And you know what? Being indifferent to Christ will still land you in hell if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And so which one are you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. Thank you, Lord God, for the truth. Thank you for who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, virgin born, seated at the right hand of the Father. And Father, I pray that all of us here would not know all this out of curiosity, but God, this would compel us to be out and about sharing our faith, serving you, worshiping you. God, that we would not be indifferent as Christians, but we would be galvanized knowing that you fulfilled prophecy at the first coming of Christ and that you will fulfill prophecy at his second coming. And if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible makes it very simple. You can't get to heaven by your good life. You can't get to heaven by being baptized. All you got to do is repent of your sins and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't trust in your good life. The moment you trust in Christ, the Bible says God will forgive you of all your sins. And if you've never done that this morning, make sure that you talk to me before you leave. Father, bless us as we go out now. Help us to invite those from the highways and byways to come, Father. We thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together as we close in worship.